This is Duke University. Sustainable social change, they've got to be very savvy about how they operate in that context um, and how they align other forces in that context to achieve the kind of change they want to achieve. Rarely can an individual social entrepreneur, no matter how good they are, uh, achieve the, the kind of widespread social change that, that they intend. So you think about Jordan talking earlier about the number of people who need eyeglasses. It's not going to be Vision Spring alone who solves that problem. In the end, it's going to have to be Vision Spring Plus. There are going to be other parties that have to pay attention to this, that have to get into this market. They're going to have to provide them. If we have to wait for Vision Spring, no matter how rapidly you grow, if we have to wait for Vision Spring to grow to serve this need, it's going to be a very long time before it gets served. Vision Spring can serve as a demonstration model, can attract some others into the market, can show what's going on. There's got to be something else here that happens if we're going to tackle these problems in a timely fashion and in a sustainable way. So for social entrepreneurs to achieve sustainable, lasting impact, quite often they've got to shape and influence the ecosystems in which they operate. They've got to affect the behavior of other players in those ecosystems. Uh, they may have to change the rules by which those ecosystems operate. They may have to create new structures, new cultures. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to toss up a framework here that uh, Paul Bloom and I put together. It comes out of an article that was in the Stanford Social Innovation Review a, few, a couple years back. Um, now if I go forward, here it is. I'm just going to quickly talk through this, and we'll use it to illustrate as we're talking. And I think it'll come to life more as we bring it to life, talking about Mozilla. Uh, but basically, it says there are players in your ecosystem and their conditions, just like a normal uh, biological ecosystem. In a biological ecosystem, you've got other plant species, animal species. Those are the players. You've got conditions, like the soil conditions, the weather conditions. Um, you've, you've got the temperature. You've got the different types of uh, how much water there is available, et cetera. So, but in terms of the players, we group them into different categories. Uh, resource providers and the intermediaries that might direct those resources uh, to you, uh, your organization, to other organizations that might be complementary or allies uh, for you, uh, to competitors that may be competing for the resources. They may also be competing to play the same kind of role that you're playing in this ecosystem. Um, the other players include uh, potential predators. Uh, or opponents, or problem makers. You can think of any number of, of ways to think about this category. Uh, but these are folks who may undermine what you're trying to achieve. There may be people who come in behind you and undo what you're, what you're trying to, to do, or set up structures that put, create barriers for you to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Um, and so you need to be aware of those folks, too. That's the red arrow, meaning it sort of subtracts from social impact if they're, if they're being effective. Here, you've got your direct beneficiaries and, and potential customers uh, here, which uh, is your path to social impact. Um, and uh, they're potentially affected bystanders. They're folks in the ecosystem you might overlook, but who are affected by the things that you do um, in your activities. And they may be affected positively or negatively. And sometimes they may get drawn into, the, into this play in some way. You can either turn them into allies. They may uh, join forces with these folks if they're affected in a negative way um, and try to block what you're doing um, yeah, yeah, politically and otherwise. Uh, but we've used these categories. We're not saying these are the only categories. 
this is a kind of framework that, uh, that can easily evolve um, over time, but these are the players we think about. These are the environmental conditions we think about. Um, political and administrative structures, that, that means public policy. Also means how public policy is implemented. Um, so how, you know, how do you register a business or a nonprofit in a, uh, a certain place? What are the regulatory rules and structures? So if you're going to start charging interest as Kiva, you know, what, what's that going to do? How's that going to change the way you operate? So right now, one of the barriers Kiva has to adopting that kind of business model it's a regulatory barrier. It's a policy barrier. And it's a barrier that will change from country to country. So it's a US barrier. It's a barrier that won't operate in the UK or through the UK. It's a barrier in developing countries that have their own regulations about this. Um, so it's administrative and policy structures. It's the economics and the markets uh, that you're operating in. So understanding economic trends, the economic conditions, and the markets you're operating in. And those can vary, obviously, from one country to another. Those conditions can, can certainly affect your ability to tap into resources. Um, the availability of those resources, the way uh, you negotiate with them. Uh, geography and infrastructure can vary, again, widely from one, uh, one market setting uh, to another. Um, and again, having worked, <coughs> pardon me, I took a couple years off to do some rural economic development in eastern Kentucky. And I can tell you that work is very different from urban uh, economic development. And so just simple geography can make a huge difference. Uh, winding your way through the hills of eastern Kentucky behind a coal truck, you'll get a good, a good sense of just how hard it is even simply for people to get anywhere. We were, we were doing entrepreneurial development and for local entrepreneurs there to even get to the community college to take a course on cash flow, for instance, is difficult. It's hard. Many of them are just not going to do it. It's a, it's a long uh, drive for many of them. Um, and so as you start to think about how do we help those entrepreneurs, you've got to take into account things like geography, local infrastructure, is it any good, what's there? And, and this could be physical infrastructure. It can be electronic or virtual infrastructure. Um, culture, demography, social trends also are conditions in which you're operating. So this is the broad framework that we use. Um, I'm going to talk about it just briefly. And we're going to hand it over to Mark. Let me give just a couple examples. Uh, and I'll try to go through these briefly. The example we use in the article is self-help. This is an organization headquartered in Durham, North Carolina. There is a, a self-help affiliate here in, in California that's doing some very innovative work. Um, but one of the things that self-help did to try to uh, make sound mortgages available for low-income customers, these are not the mortgages that are going to explode on them in three years when the rates go up, but these are actually well-underwritten mortgages that will allow low-income homeowners to, to ideally repay their loans and own their houses. Um, and this was before the, the, the market uh, fell apart. Um, they did a couple things. One, they went after the predators who they thought were doing predatory lending practices. Those lending practices contributed to the mortgage, uh, the mortgage crisis that we had. Um, they set up a Center for Responsible Lending. That Center for Responsible Lending uh, tracked those practices, brought them to the attention of policymakers, and in some states got some laws enacted. Unfortunately, many of those laws were too late uh, to have stopped the crisis. Uh, but they were, weren't too late to have protected at least some families. But uh, Center for Responsible Lending, which is in DC, has worked with many states to try to set up um, new laws and to track different questionable lending practices. Um, and that was a way to affect the ecosystem in which self-help was operating to make those loans available. They also created a new secondary market, working with Fannie Mae and the Ford Foundation uh, to create a secondary market for these particular sound, low-income uh, borrowers. 
um, but it got mixed up with the secondary market for highly questionable loans. Unfortunately, not, I mean, they had their own market, but it was, but there was also this huge market for loans that were not well underwritten um, at the same time. But again, it was their strategy for affecting the ecosystem in which they're operating and to free up capital to make new loans. They originated, or through that, originated some over $4 billion worth of uh, secondary securities of, of soundly underwritten low-income mortgages. Uh, another example of influencing the ecosystem was the Harvard Alcohol Project came up with the idea of designated driver, which is the idea of reducing drunk driving, not reducing drinking. So you've got to be careful about this. So having a designated driver does not reduce drinking, so it's not a strategy for getting people off of alcohol. It's simply a strategy for getting them home from the bar safely. Um, so people often push back on this because this it is not addressing that prob this particular problem. It's simply getting people home and reducing, ideally, the number of deaths on the highway as a result. Um, they did partner with MAD to, to make this concept popular. But it, they also very cleverly partnered with TV producers. So on shows, uh, those of you old enough to remember Cheers, it was a popular show <coughs> at the time, got uh, producers of that show and other shows to feature designated drivers. And it, this became a part of the culture to have a designated driver. So they changed the culture, another way to change an ecosystem. Finally, I'll mention City Year, <coughs> which was one of the pioneers in national service. Uh, they created a uh, strong national service program in Boston. Of course, they have one in San Jose out here, which is one of the affiliates. Um, and <coughs> no, I'm sorry for that. I'm getting a little dry late in the day. Um, the, <coughs> uh, the one in Boston served as a kind of action tank to test out their concept for national service. It also, uh, they used that as a platform for uh, pushing legislation helping to develop the early AmeriCorps legislation, and most recently, the Kennedy Serve America Act, <coughs> which is expanding AmeriCorps to, 20, to 225,000 members. So um, city years influenced the ecosystem through policy. Just finally, a couple comments on this. Uh, ecosystem thinking puts your venture in a broader perspective, and, and we really strongly suggest to social entrepreneurs that they do that. It's so easy to get focused on the day-to-day. -day. What are we doing? How are we doing it? Let's get it done. Let's get eyeglasses on people. Um, let's get you know, our fair trade brand in the stores. This just sort of forces you to step back and say, OK, overall, what's our goal? What are we trying to accomplish? Who else do we need to get involved to accomplish it? What other levers do we have to achieve that impact? Um, in the end, it's all about let's achieve some kind of disproportionate impact relative to our size and our influence. Let's find levers to do that. And what are the levers in the ecosystem for achieving that? <coughs> all right. <coughs> Sorry, that's the end of mine. Mark? <coughs> I think so. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah. <coughs> I have a bottle. I will, yeah. So really, uh, what I want to actually get Greg to do in about 10 minutes is sort of take this diagram and, and throw it against Mozilla. So we're going to do a little sort of Oprah-style talk show where, where he does that. <laughs> um, I want to set him up a little bit uh, and set you guys all a little bit. Uh, um, with, with the story of Mozilla and the story of Firefox, just as fodder for this, and through an ecosystem lens, 
And so I want to talk about what we care about as an organization, uh, which is the open web. And I want to talk about that in the, in the context of Firefox, although it's not the only thing we do. Now, um, will this work? No, I'm going to stand over here. Battery design. And I guess, you know, I'll talk about what we think of in Firefox as there before, which is to move and shape markets, the market which is the web uh, as a whole, which, you know, both essentially it has to be an ecosystem play, and, and I think even if we wouldn't have called it that, is exactly how we work. I mean, there's a lot of different players and pieces in the picture, uh, and most importantly, uh, there's always been intended using all of those players to have that leverage impact way beyond our size. So I guess, um, how many people here use Firefox? So uh, when you're doing Firefox, how many people think they're saving the internet? Right? So the thing is, most people don't think about the fact that we exist for something bigger than to make this piece of open source software. If you go back to our California Corporation papers in 2003, those are the exact words it says in the mission section. And so why we make Firefox is in pursuit of that mission. And what I want to do is, uh, as a part of unpacking the, the ecosystem idea, talk a little bit about sort of our theory of change. Uh, again, we probably use those fancy academic words ourselves, in terms of how we're trying to guard the open nature of the internet with Firefox. And also, I'll preview a little bit what, are, what we think are some of the, the challenges ahead for the internet. And of course, it, it probably goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, um, we see the internet as a huge and essential public resource for humanity, right? So why you want to guard its open nature is the wealth, the creativity, the social good that has come from the internet is because it's an open system that people can innovate on top of it, right? So that's what we're guarding, is this common asset that's open for humanity to work on. And when you say, well, how do you guard that? Well, one specific goal, there's probably a lot of other ones, uh, is this. Does anybody know what this is? So this is the declaration at the beginning of a web page that you wouldn't see, see that says this is an HTML page. And one of our goals when we set out with Firefox was to make sure that you saw a lot more of these at the top of web pages, or more importantly, that things on the web were built with standards. And so that openness, that raw material, which has created so much wealth and innovation, is because there's a, basically a set of Lego blocks that make up the internet that we can all use without asking anybody else's permission. And we were at a, a point where those Lego blocks were in danger. And so, you know, goal, go and fight for the Lego blocks. And, you know, that's a very worthy social cause, boring for all of you. But if you think about it in your own context, this is probably something familiar. How many people see this from time to time? Not that many. People all work in universities where they force you to use Thunderbird or something. Um, so what's interesting about this compared to you know, where we were uh, when we started with Firefox is you know, this is a, a productivity app on the web, and it's made out of open standards, made out of HTML, CSS, JavaScript. It's you know because those standards are ubiquitous across all of the ways that we see the web now that we've got all of these things and we've got Google Docs and we've got all of the things that you use right we're made up of that Lego the Lego is very rich and healthy right now that's what makes the internet so good um, but keeping that Lego healthy is about the the ecosystem being built around strengthening that open Lego system and if we go back to 2003 when when Mozilla Foundation started and around the time that Firefox was starting to become the way we were working on the browser, um, it wasn't a healthy ecosystem. And so 
28, 2003, Microsoft Internet Explorer 6 through 5, 97, plus 1.49, plus 5. You get the idea that there was one way to see the internet. And that one way to see the internet uh, was not one that was being designed or was supportive to that open set of Legos, that open standard-based vision of the web. And so this is actually a, a less than a year old, this picture, but um, it represents something that probably a lot of us saw five or six years ago. Just blow up the well, people remember, just put your hand, seeing boxes like this ever before? These people weren't you're either tired of your hands or you're paying attention at the time. But um, you know, it, it was the case that people were designing web pages just for Internet Explorer, because why not, right? That was 98% of how people were seeing the internet. And what that meant was a lot of the open standards, a lot of the raw material of innovation that was uh, that makes the internet and the web what it is today, and uh, what it was always intended to be by the people who invented it, was eroding. And it was eroding because one company got to decide how you made web pages. And you know, it used lots of the, the pieces of HTML, but it was also going off in, in other directions. Um, and at the same time, this is also pulled out from 2003, uh, you started to see nicer web pages. Like if you remember, web pages you know, used to be a little bit less uh, you know, magical, like you know, you'd have to kind of reload all the time, whatever. You started to see these web pages where you know, menus popped up and stuff the way they do now. Uh, and this is one of those from 2003. But if you went and you did view source, which people may not know what you can do here, but on any web page you go view source and see how it's made, which of course is one of the reasons that innovation has moved so fast on the web is the source code of any web page is available to, to anyone. Um, so we go and we hit view source on this page. Um, probably doesn't mean anything to, to many people here, but basically the only piece of content in there is this line, which ends with the .swf, which is it's a flash file. So none of that page is really made with that open set of Lego blocks. There was an idea in the early part of, of you know, around 2003, in order to make things interactive, in order to get to things like we have now with Gmail or YouTube, the only way to do it would be to close it inside of this box. There wasn't a set of open Lego blocks. Uh, upon which the internet now exists in front. So that's what we were fighting against. That was what Firefox was there to address, as well as the fact that everybody was looking at the internet through a lens uh, that didn't support this vision. So how do we go? Uh, how do we go at that? Here is a very funny story. A friend of mine, who is the president of uh, Mozilla Europe, used to work at Netscape. Um, you know, at a certain point. AOL shuts down Netscape and all these people, some of whom had worked on the Mozilla project as, as volunteers in the community project outside of AOL, outside of Netscape, before the foundation had formed. Uh, he was in sort of outplacement training, right? Like he didn't have a job, they're trying to help him find a job. And everybody was also in outplacement training, it's kind of like an AA meeting, and they're like, yeah, well, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I'm going to really retrain and become a cook. Or, you know, I, I really got to get my skills to become an accountant. It comes to him and he says, I'm going to help form a nonprofit with 10 other people, and we're going to take on Microsoft. <laughs> and everybody kind of looked at him and said, you know, come on. But that's exactly what we did, and um, that's who we are. Uh, and from those 10 people, of which he was one, um, that's a part of who we are now. That's uh, this summer at Whistler, BC, uh, including these people who actually do have our real people who work in the village, so I'd be cautious. Um, that's 600 people, 300 community volunteers, and the 300 people who are paid to work for Mozilla, uh, all of whom are in some way involved in making Firefox and Thunderbird. Um, and what's more important is there's 300 volunteers there, but there's another uh, 
about 20,000 people who in some voluntary capacity still make a firewall. And so you know, the, the first part of the ecosystem that, that we went after was getting people involved in this grand effort of bringing back the web. Right? So that's a very important social cause for the people who understood it. And a pretty massive number of people stepped to the plate to, to come and help do it. Right. But who else we also got to participate in? This is an interesting part of the, the sort of ecosystem part that, that may not be obvious to you. It starts to speak to great models, great false models, which is we also got web developers involved in participating. And so one of the really key things in terms of the, the impact we wanted, bringing back the life, preserving the play of logs, is that web developers had to start building web pages differently. They had to start building web pages that re-embrace standards uh, and they didn't have that message where it said this only works in internet code. They needed to test it in Firefox. They needed to write to more standards-based codes, all those kind of things. So that's a big thing in terms of shifting the ecosystem. Now, the good news is uh, Internet Explorer was crappy for them. Uh, they hated to develop in, in it. Uh, and also, at the time, by bringing back and moving the browsers back, back towards standards and JavaScript uh, getting better and all of those CSS uh, emerging and getting better, um, what happened is they could start building these Ajaxy web apps, or these, these kind of flashier web apps that we're used to today, which are just made up of the basic Lego blocks of the internet. But what we had to do, and, and they came with us, and they're a part of that, was get web developers also excited about building the internet in a different way, and moving back to standards. So that's the other thing we did. We did it you know, partly by giving them better tools, and partly by giving them documentation, and partly by running events for them, and partly because they just wanted to seem cool and not Microsoft and stuff like that. But it shifted the web. Um, and then there's, a, there's at least one other group of people worth mentioning, and there are more in this ecosystem. But there's the people who are here. Uh, does anybody know what that is? If not, people who work for Mozilla are not allowed to answer. Any guesses? So that's a, a New York Times ad that came out uh, in uh, the Sunday New York Times when Firefox 1 was launched. Was and these are the names of everybody who gave $10 or more to place that ad. So people cared enough about getting this out that $200,000 was raised to buy that ad uh, when Firefox came out, right? So the people who cared about what the web would become or were excited by Firefox or whatever were also critical. And I think that's really, if you want to go to the, kind of the business story inside of it, absolutely critical, probably one of the most important elements uh, you know, not because they put this in here, but because on almost no marketing budget, we went from zero to 23% market share to 400 million users uh, because people went and installed it on each other's computers, right? So how many people uh, have installed Firefox on somebody else's computer? So, you know, you guys are a part of that. And how many people had somebody install it for you? Right? So you're the beneficiaries of that, right? So that's a really critical part of this story that almost no other company can, you know, well, we're not a company, but nobody else can say that's how they do it, right? That's really critical part of the ecosystem play and participation. And so this is now drastically out of date, as will be the other uh, statistical graph I show you. Um, but this shows you the kind of the general breakdown of what that ecosystem is, or at least the direct ecosystem. So I think what you'll hopefully pull out breaks is a little bit of indirect ecosystem. Um, but you know what it has here is 400 core contributors, people who write Firefox, and it's bigger than that now. 200,000, sorry, 2,000 localizers and add-on developers. And so those are, you know, Firefox comes out in over 70 languages on the day of release. 
all made by volunteers, right? Um, so then the New York Times donors, people who submit bugs, people who made it, alpha test, three million people who made a test, uh, eight million people who did a, a Guinness Book of World Records, uh, download anything, and at this point it's about 400 million users. So those people are all pitching in. Uh, those people are all a part of us trying to win that doc type uh, battle and try to keep the, the Lego that the internet is built on uh, alive and healthy. And here's just a, a bit of the story, which if we did get to the financial stuff, I don't know if we'll, we'll get to that, is kind of interesting. Um, so here's market share growth. Again, it's, it's totally out of date, but this goes to 2007 and uh, we're at 400 million users, but the, the curve just keeps going up from there. And basically what happened is we were a little dogged open source project, and I wasn't involved in any of this period. Um, and then when we actually got to, and didn't have much market share, and then we get to Firefox, and what happens is we're totally surprised that there's 10 million downloads in the first 30 days, and it just goes up like this. Like nobody thought that would happen. Um, and um, what's even more interesting than the market share part is what's happened in the ecosystem. So what's happening in the ecosystem is we've gone from this in 2003 to this in 2008 to this in 2010. And what's interesting about where we are in 2010 is, you know, we've got some other problems related to this, but we've got the world we want in that the ecosystem or the web is now fragmented in terms of the choices that users have. And yes, there are differences of opinion on a lot of technical details that matter, but the main browsers that aren't Internet Explorer, and now with IE9 even Internet Explorer, are basically pushing not only that basic standard-based idea of what the web is, what that Lego toolkit should be, but the cutting edge of it. And so you've now got all these people driving forward, and they do some other nasty things that we don't love, uh, driving forward with an idea of the web that is based on this open set of Lego law. Uh, and if, you, if you're more business-minded, that's what the market share looks like in the pie chart, although I think it's less sexy than the logos. But you get the point, is that you know, we've gone from monopoly to diversity, and not only diversity that, that's marginal, I mean, it's quite healthy beyond even just Firefox. So that is awesome for this open Lego block world, right? It's very good. It's in part the world we wanted to see, in many ways we wanted to see, and it's been awesome you just think of the last three years of the web, you think about things like Kiva, for creativity, for innovation, for moving markets. And that's exactly what we did, right? Here's a, a small nonprofit that went from the internet and how it's built being closed down as a market to broad market behavior being very different in terms of how we make the internet and how we consume it. So that, that's what we were doing. And of course, that's made a, a much healthier ecosystem, which of course is not just Firefox or browsers, but it's all of the things that benefit from the internet remaining an open system that all of us use every day. I'm sure those are all very familiar logos to you. So, uh, guard the open nature of the internet. We got some good things. We didn't do them alone. Uh, Greg can interview me and ask me more about them. I wasn't around for, for all of it. Um, before I do that, I just want to leave you with, um, is it over? Or is the fact that we got some of the world we wanted to live in uh, enough, and now we can shut up, you know, shut things down and, and go home or have a party. And the unfortunate thing is, uh, no, we still need to do that. And there's a bunch of places um, that things are quite 
worrisome or concerning where we still need to push at, towards that mission in, in other domains. And three that are just worth highlighting are mobile and the, and the mobile internet, your and my identity on the internet, who we are, our social graph, our friends, and also the web that we build. That same question of the web developers building out the Lego block is still uh, in question right now because there are other changes that are pushing developers away from uh, from the open kind of Lego block version of the internet. And so as we move forward, we're trying to use the assets we have and use that same strategy participation ecosystem to shift mobile. So mobile Firefox, as well as an open web app store we announced this week, being about trying to disrupt and take apart the kind of iPhone and, and other kind of, kind of closed app store environment, which is really a threat to the internet itself. Uh, identity in labs, working to do things that will give you more control over your social graph, your data, and those kind of things. And it's something that I'm driving called Drumby, trying to go to industries that build big parts of the web, education, media, film, uh, and work with the people who are innovators in those spaces to get them thinking about what technologies the web should be made up of uh, in the future. So that's probably longer than I said it would be, uh, but hopefully it sets up for a, a good conversation. That's, all right, excellent. Thanks, Mark. And actually, one, should we go back to your diagram? Uh, yeah, if we, yeah, sure, let's put, let's put that up. Uh, and you did say Oprah talk show, not cough show, right? Yeah. So, and so I've got, I've got to stifle the coughing. Um, so, yeah, let's. Even though you weren't here at the beginning, we'll, we can even just kind of roll the tape back conceptually to talk a little bit about how this played out when you when Mozilla was started and when Mozilla decided to roll out Firefox as well to to change the ecosystem uh, here in terms of uh, the internet. Um, how, how, much, how much did it matter that uh, Microsoft had been under pressure uh, legally and publicly about Internet Explorer and about the integration of Internet Explorer in, in Windows? Did that help create an opportunity or not? Did that, that make any difference? Yeah, I don't know. Because it wasn't here, I, 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 mean, I can't say yeah. exactly this, exactly that. You know, my guess is that an observer is probably as good as yours, that certainly the public pressure put on the radar you know, yeah. that this is something to care about, right? So to the fact that nobody put up their hand uh, saying, I use Firefox because I'm saving the web, you might have actually at, at that moment in time with that public pressure had more people say, well, I'm a little bit worried about that monopoly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how many of you followed that, but certainly there was a period of time in which Microsoft was sued because they were requiring everybody to buy Internet Explorer as part of Windows, and, and there was an issue of whether that ought to be separated out. People ought to be able to choose their uh, their browser uh, independently, and it probably also pushed Microsoft back a bit um, off of putting pressure on developers to be exclusive. Uh, I, I would think for for Internet Explorer, but as as you as you, I think they also got a bit lazy. Yeah, right? you know, you have that you have a monopoly like that. Um, you know, you don't push developers because you know you got the platform, right? Why keep innovating? Yeah, so why, why do you think, I mean, clearly your success was driven in part by so many people here mm -hmm. adopting Firefox. Why do you think that happened? Um, you know, I mean, since so many, we didn't get all these hands going up on doing it to fight Microsoft or to right. free up the web. Why, why, I mean, everybody's got a browser. Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a, there's a bunch of reasons that are, um, that are pretty easy to see, and they range from the fact that 
like a lot of the people who did install Microsoft, uh, install Firefox, you know, on other people's home computers or office computers, did feel like they were doing some kind of rebel thing, right? So I think there was an early adopter. Uh, yeah. I see some heads nodding. Okay. Right? Yeah. People tell me that when we talk about sort of how we actually need to reshape our brand, and we're thinking about a lot of that stuff now. Is you know, I I got on the train because I felt I was a part of the Rebel Alliance, right? So I think there yeah. was a part of that, and those people brought other people on, and then you know, this is a really critical thing that I think a lot of most successful social enterprises, people like Fair Trade, uh, that are in the consumer space, realize. You then need to, for the, the that next group, deliver on the, the promise of the brand, right? So the Rebel Alliance is nice for the people who you know are happy to have warts on their organic food, but then it actually has to taste better, right, for the next percentage of the market. And so you know, Firefox right. was fast. Uh, Firefox had a pop-up blocker in it, mm -hmm. and I mean, how many people remember pop-ups, right? Oh. And, and how many people are plagued by them constantly today, right? So there were some pretty basic product offer, you know, things that the product did better, right? It was faster, yes. it was simpler, and it got rid of pop-ups. And it was safer. I mean, also, who remembers browser-based viruses, right? You know, that was a... These, yeah. It's hard to remember back because we've shifted that so much. Yeah, it's fascinating that you did. And I want to, I mean, in, in part, we're going to talk about ecosystems, but also there are a lot of themes that come up in the Mozilla story that pick up on issues that we discussed this morning. So as, as you talk about that, here you've got this superior product. Why do it as a nonprofit? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess the, the two, two good reasons, the, the practical one and the, um, and the you know, I think, essential visionary one. And the essential visionary one is you know, the, the Internet is a critical public resource for humanity. Like it, it's not to be understated. And to have an organization that is trying to shape the market and shape sort of the behavior of the people who influence what the web is, who, you know, for the next 25 or 50 or 100 years, hold themselves accountable not to, to profit, but to that goal, I, I think is a good one, right? So right now, nobody's, gonna be, nobody's able to sell Firefox to somebody who would come and buy it. And it's worth a lot of money, right, if yeah. we wanted to divest of it. And we wouldn't. And the reason is we want there to be an organization and a group of people who stand up for this. And we want that to be something that never can be liquidated and is there past the, the lifespans of all the people who founded it. So, so, I mean, I think that's, I was talking to some other folks, a uh, person from the Nature Conservancy about this, also then in relationship to the, you know, why not make Fair Trade, a, Fair Trade USA a, a for-profit? Like for yep. me, same answer for them, right? You want that brand and that standard to be incorruptible and, and there as a public asset for a really long time. So that's the main reason. And I think we stand by that and it's, it's not going to change. There also was a very silly and practical reason. Well, maybe not silly. Very practical reason. We didn't think there was any way to make any money off it. Mm. Right? So Mozilla was right. financed by you know people who donated, just like people who donated to the New York Times ad, and by a couple of medium-sized grants in the beginning, and a, you know, a bunch of smallish major donors, right? So the, the idea is this is going to be a 10-person nonprofit with a lot of volunteers begging for donations, right? Or yeah. you know, maybe begging is the wrong word. So the, that was the structure we thought we had to have. Now, turns out there are other ways we're able to generate revenue from search uh, and other things. Turns out that way more people use um, use Firefox than, uh, than we thought. And so that revenue opportunity that, that we kind of stumbled across in search went through the, the roof much faster than we, we did. And we haven't had to have 
donations is a core part of what we're doing. And we have them also as something we're using for expanding into new fields. But um, yeah, I, I think in the end, though, the stewardship piece is the reason to, to remain a nonprofit. It's pretty core to who we are. Yeah, so what is your overall business model now, then, in terms of mix of earned income and donations? What's so I think the mix of earned incomes and donations right now is probably 95% earned income and, and with wow. a big surplus on operating, yeah. right? And we've got, I think, you know, $100 million in the bank or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, by far it's, um, it's earned income. It's not to say that it'll always stay that way. Uh, yep. And I think we actually both... Uh, in order to, both from a diversity perspective, actually also from a connectedness perspective, that Pernell talked about, are going to be putting more emphasis on membership and donations uh, over the next few years, and also more emphasis on partnerships with other people who can bring significant philanthropic resources and pool them with us. Because our interest is both having people have a buy-in uh, you know, through donating or other kinds of participation to this idea of where the web goes. And we want to influence how philanthropic money thinks about the web and, and that aspect of, especially you know, if they're in education, if they're in media, mm-hmm. getting them thinking about what does the, what the web mean for the future of the domains where they're trying to work. So in order to achieve this impact, did you form any specific alliances or coalitions, or did you? is this all been just largely Mozilla and then developers just kind of came along on their own, or how did... Yeah, How'd so, you do this? You know, so I guess I mean it's all alliances and it's all participation, right? I mean it's like yeah. a huge ragged artillery of, of you know whatever that is, yeah. four hundred million people are. Well, that. coming along, but I mean but, deliberately. So were there intentional strategic alliances, people you sought out, organizations you sought out to? In that regard, yes, yeah, right. So really creating people who were working on core aspects of the technology. Yeah, um, and then you know, I don't really want to say this, especially on videotape. Um, okay. But, but I, you know, I, I think a lot of the things that people would think of as strategic alliances, traditionally in nonprofits, um, there was a lot of that. Like, we need this organization, we need this, we need that. Um, didn't end up having as much impact as saying we need that person, we need that community, we need the you know people in that to help translate it. So yep. think of what, what the stuff that you know is an internet era corollary to community organizing was much more important in terms of bringing energy in than kind of traditional organization to organizational partnering. But there are, you know, there are key things. Like there's, it's very arcane stuff, but like some of the stuff underneath uh, that runs critical parts of internet security, we did with other people like IBM, right? Mm-hmm. And so there, there were a lot of early alliances that still there are pieces of floating around that are, I guess what you think, what you might think of as, you know, traditional open source resourcing in the sense that, you know, IBM will do this part, or Mozilla will do this part, or you know somebody else will do that part, right? Yep. Um, but that's that's not been as big a, a part of it. Interesting. Okay, and who, so other than I, would you put Microsoft down in this box, or her, do you think are they? Yeah, I mean, I, I think any. So they, they certainly were. Right? I guess they, you can judge for yourself whether they're relevant now. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I mean, seriously, yeah. in terms of what we think about, I mean, they're, they're a relevant company. In terms of shaping the, like, the destiny of the web, Apple and Google and Facebook, and maybe even Adobe, have as much or more influence than, than Microsoft does on where the web can so, be, right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> in various years, all of those other players who have influence on the web definitely can, you know, can either be here or here. 
right? Or, or Our, I don't know where your allies. The allies are right, right behind you. Right. So they, yeah. you know, they can be either here or here. And so, you know, when Apple goes and uh, doesn't put Flash on the iPad and on um, on the iPad and on the iPhone, so you yes. have to use HTML5 video. Yes. That's awesome for the web ecosystem, right? So, so they're here, right? They just did in a in a one fell swoop something to take away this closed box of video that's inside of Flash and Adobe that, that's really good for everybody and it helps a bunch of things we're trying to do and others are trying to do in terms of that open set of Lego blocks. On the other hand, you know, the, the App Store model and the kind of closed proprietary platforms of apps on the iPhone and iPad are disastrous for the internet and certainly something that we want to see replaced by you know, being able to use the web on any device and have an app that runs on any device. You know, because you don't want to go back to the world where, you know, sorry, I have a PC, you have a Mac, we can't use the same accounting software, I have to buy a Mac, because I got Fork Express, like, I mean, that's 1985, we, we don't want oh. to go back to that world, partly because it sucks, but it's also bad for the internet, so in that case, they're over there. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> this is important, because as we've thought about examples and played out how you do this analysis with specific organizations, quite often you'll see one organization that can fit into multiple boxes on here, and in this case, you've got Apple, in two different places. They're an ally in some ways, and they, they could end up in either place, and they could be driven to either place, depending on what happens with their strategy or how they interact with you and with others uh, who are playing in this space. I mean, if Do Adobe had come to them and worked out a deal, then they end up shifting. Um, so it's a combination of sort of like vision and, and also just behavior in the marketplace. Because of course, we're not coordinating on whether they're in Right. That box or not, right? They're making right. their own decisions. And yes. That's what an ecosystem is, right? You, that animal eats that thing, and it, then I starve, or whatever. Yeah. Right? So that's right. Kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is certainly amount of, um, uh, an amount of risk. Do you, who do you, is there anybody you're particularly worried about uh, when you start thinking about the future and some of the risks to the internet here. So, so I think that there, like, there's behaviors where internet we're, we're okay. worried about or particular things. I mean, the, the proprietary single platform mobile apps. That we're worried about that, right? Yeah. Uh, the siloization of your identity in one place, or whether that's Facebook, or whether that's Twitter, or whether that's Gmail. So that then what happens is we start layering other kinds of data on top of those places, and we don't have control over our own data. Absolutely, something we're particularly worried about. Yes. Uh, you know, industries like education that I, I worry about a lot being very slow moving and buying into closed proprietary systems. So even if the market goes in the right direction, big chunks of society go in the wrong direction. You know, I'm worried about those things too. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think that there's any big. The, the good news is we, we're not in a situation where the whole IT landscape has got a single monopoly controlling it. Yeah. Right? So there are behaviors by particular players in the marketplace which we think are you know, not where the web should go or, or are particularly worrying, but you're not in a situation where somebody in a completely vertically integrated way controls the whole thing. So that's, that's actually, even though many worrying things, probably not a bad place to be. Well, let's, let's open it up. So uh, we, we should make this conversation with the whole group. So um, other questions for Mark? Yeah, Kate. I have a question. In, in the early days of the internet, there, were often, there would be standards groups mm -hmm. and member organizations and there were international scope and there were um, you know, large groups of rocket scientists in the chat world. So you mentioned um, you know, specific competitors and right. competitors, but is there a 
role in this ecosystem still for these global or international? In particular, the World Wide Web Consortium, which controls the HTML spec, yes. very, very relevant, um, also doesn't move at the same speed as the market. Right. And so one of the things that's really interesting, and I'm not the expert in this, I'm kind of one of the experts around here that we want, it, but you'll see it in terms of you know things like video that have come out and become a part of the web in the last year. Um, that what's kind of happening is the standards bodies are sort of defining the terrain, but not necessarily finalizing the standards. And then you're you're doing basically what we've actually done all along. You're now seeing Google and Apple, not really so much Microsoft do as well. Is you're then proving that those draft specifications work even before they're finalized in the market. And what that means is. Um, you know, there's some unevenness between how those standards are implemented, and then the standard body has to kind of come back and consolidate it. So the, the difference is they're still important. Uh, I think their role is changing in that it's not so much that they get to the end of a prescriptive process, and then the market just picks it up. There's a, there's a now an interplay between the market and the standard body. But it sounds like, so they are a critical part of the ecosystem. Would sure. Would be fair to say in terms of the uh, culture of openness and Yep, and I think also in terms of that broader like idea of the internet as a public asset, right? So for us, if that's the bottom line, right, that the internet remains a public asset in the sense that it's Lego blocks that anyone can build on, they're they're a critical part of that because they own the specifications, they own the Lego blocks. Can I just follow up on that? It sounds like they are some of your best allies then, in some ways. Yeah, not necessarily the easiest to work with, but right. most mm -hmm. important. And then you are kind of this outlier ally for them, right? Because you're producing new products and kind of proving, or, and is, are yeah. there other strategies that you that you are doing besides, you know, besides product disruption to, to show to show openness? I mean, it, in, in terms of for them or, or just in general? In general. So in, so in general, product disruption is where we've been <coughs> successful. Um, and so in then in mobile and then hopefully in identity, that's what we need as well. This sort of drumbeat piece I talked about briefly that I'm running uh, is about a, a broader footprint that kind of goes beyond product and is much more about bringing in the people who will shape what the web needs in different parts of the world and basically nurturing them to kind of, I guess, be ambassadors of our agenda. And so, uh, for example, under that drumbeat banner, we've created this open video lab, lab for filmmakers who are trying to do interactive cinema to help them take the cutting edge of these Lego building blocks and make sure that what they're experimenting with in interactive cinema is, you know, both tapping into the, the most cutting edge stuff we have, but also built on those open principles, right? We're doing stuff like that in education, we'll probably do stuff like that next year in journalism. So that's a, a becoming our second tier, which is the, the shape, what I call shaping the web we weave, or shaping these industries, and that's not product disruption, it's much more kind of uh, trying to shape practice and behavior. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that they would then be product disruptors. Yeah, because well, there has to be a critical mass of people following those principles for it to become an overall yeah, standard. It's, it's a sort of. I mean, it's not the same as product disruption in that it doesn't kind of come in and right. like that. It, right. It's a much it's kind a slower, of slower thing. Like you know, we're kind of raising the turning the water on slowly. It's going to rise. Now, you, you hopefully, we'll have things like say somebody from that lab produces something that you know wins an Academy Award right. or wins mm -hmm. a Sundance that will just you know open people's minds up and we're going to be thinking about those things. But it's not so much the product itself as much as how it influences thinking. So it's, it's a much more traditional nonprofit strategy in that way. It's influencing 
behavior pattern, influencing kind of professional practices, all of that kind of stuff. And we don't know if that'll work or not. Okay, we can go here. Yeah, there's one over there too. But let's let's yeah. Okay, so yeah, we got. Question. Are you, a, are you, uh, <coughs> you tell if you're uh, primarily a, a northern hemisphere urban ecosystem, or are you also equally a southern hemisphere rural ecosystem too? Because I I, I think I mentioned to you that mm. I've, I've been in some uh, you know cooperative computer labs you know way out in the middle of nowhere in Brazil, but I didn't, you know, I didn't happen to notice, you know, what they were using for their browser. So, so I mean, I think there's a couple of questions to that. One is, where are we centered in terms of, like, who's driving the ecosystem? And it's clearly mostly northern and, and urban, and certainly primarily urban. Um, you know, the fact that you get Firefox out in 70 languages on the daily release also means there are a lot of, we've got a lot of global reach, right? Sure. Um, and so we're certainly not just a North American organization, um, and we're not just Northern in terms of, you know, there's an awesome community in Brazil or in other places like that that translate Firefox. In terms of the, the impact uh, and, like, who uses it, I, I think we don't really know, like, to, to your very specific question, like, are we in, uh, are they using Internet Explorer in, in kind of rural Brazil or not? Anecdotally, there's some things we, we can know in terms of, you know, people who run cyber cafes, in particular ones that are, um, like in Brazil, it's legally hard to run a cyber cafe. A lot of the people share the, share the same kind of spirit we have, and you see them picking up Firefox as a part of their sort of rebel attitude. Or Indonesia, where people are almost all, only accessing Firefox through, or the internet through cyber cafes is 60% Firefox market share. Or 50% Firefox market share. So, I mean, you have things that kind of say that maybe we have a, a better reach out in those contexts, but it's pretty hard to know. Okay, let's go back here. Hi, Deborah. And I think we're we're mo we're unique-ish. I mean, there's a couple of other outliers like us, and, and you're it's interesting to watch them go through their leadership changes. So Wikipedia is as mainstream, I think, in the consumer market for the internet as we are, and different but similar things. And so I actually think for people who study this stuff, like you, to look at kind of these very mass Akiva is another one, sort of mass hybrid organizations that sit across the market and mission and use this kind of leverage you can get from the internet are interesting to look at. And I, and I think in all of those, and, and those three organizations I mentioned have struggled with it in different ways, um, probably three things. I mean, it's, it's hard to like, think of a long list. Um, I see it as really critical, and I'm thinking about Mitchell a lot as I, I think about this. 
Um, you know, certainly the, the deep, dogged, almost insane commitment to holding that space around this public asset, right? So everybody who's played a leadership role, especially since the beginning, could have made way more money, could have, you know, shaped the, the market in lots of really interesting ways, could have had lots of fun, right? And if, you know, if you spend time with the people who have been here longer than I have, uh, especially Mitchell, the, the commitment to this, like, this is a important public asset. We are here protecting and building, right? Like, and if, if you kind of imply the other way, you might get in a fight. And mm. so, like, that, that holding of the space around the importance of this resource is really, I think, critical. It has to be deep. And it's an interesting question over time, how like we're going through some board development stuff or whatever, how you can uh, kind of deepen that and make it resilient, right? Um, so I mean, something that, that I'm thinking about a lot right now. Um, and then you know I think the other thing which often doesn't come with you see it in social entrepreneurs. I think sometimes it's it's what you mean by social entrepreneurs, at least in the consumer space. Something that doesn't come with the kind of granola social public benefit stuff is an absolute commitment to stop being awesome. And there's no sense that, you know, Firefox can go out there and we can say we're the nonprofit browser, you know, suck it up, it's slower. Right? And, and so that that combination alone, right, is the dogged protection of this public benefit and the commitment to like the table stakes is being awesome. And then after that we save the world. Right? So that that is really important. And then I think the third thing which is you know, having leadership that can make that participation work, right? So that's a different kind of holding the space. And you know, um, Mitchell in particular, but I think a lot of people who have played leadership roles in, in Mozilla, very strong individuals, and nobody would question that. At the same time, incredibly committed to stepping aside and letting other people lead uh, in ways that sometimes are, are hard and painful to watch, like at, in terms of saying, well, this person's got an idea, they've got an initiative. Don't stop the initiative, right? Don't throw stop energy out of there. And that's always a hard balance, because you also want to direct things in a certain way. So I think that ability to, to truly, not in any kind of shallow rhetorical sense, let other people lead. Um, and also know when those other people who are, are leading are the ones that want to turn up the volume on and put more energy behind. Um, so that's, I think, a third critical element. Great, thanks. He's, he's had his hand up for a long time. Um, can you grow by acquisition? Pardon? Can you grow by acquisition? In terms of other companies? There, there's a couple, so I've only been here a little over two years. There's been a couple times where we've had to kind of talk about, like, we've had the opportunity to talk about that, saying, oh, there's something that looks like it shares our values, it, it needs some life support, or it might be right for acquisition, uh, and we haven't done any of those things. Um, and so it's not to say that we might never, um, but in those cases, it's pretty hard to see how, I guess two things, see the fit, right? So how's that thing gonna organically become a part of this organism? Um, and in particular, is it, so yeah, I think that's the main thing. Is like, if you brought it in, would it feel, would it thrive uh, in this cultural context? Would we add to it? And in the cases of, you know, where we've talked about that, the answer has been no. Um, but the other thing is, it, it's, a, it's an odd thing to think about. Um, I mean, you don't want to write it off, but it's an odd thing to think about when how you build things is by everybody pitching in, right? To say, you know, we're building this code base, we're building these new things. Yeah, we've got paid employees, but there's also a lot of volunteers out there building it. To then say, we're going to go and, like, 
pay X amount of money for this thing and bring it in. It, again, it's not to write it off, but every, the few times we've looked at it, it felt odd. Um, so I don't know. I think it's a case-by-case -case thing. I wouldn't rule it out, but it hasn't seemed like the right thing to do. And certainly, I can't imagine us growing by acquisition in the core markets, like in the browser market, for example, right? If you look around, these are not companies we can acquire. Um, but also, uh, it points to the fact that pure market share isn't our goal. So our, you know, as long as we have enough market share that we can shape the overall discussion about what the web is, we're, we're fine. So that kind of growth also, important to say, isn't the growth we would go after through acquisition just because it's not, uh, it's not the main motivator. Yeah, so let's, let's go over here. I have a question about the organization uh -huh. structure and communication um, from, I guess, inception. So from when you started with these 10 people to the launch of 1.0 to what you are today, how was that facilitated? How did people meet? If everybody's all over the place, what they're doing with half volunteers, half do So you're talking about like the that. operational side yeah. of, of participation and collaboration? And keeping people engaged and just sort of that. So, so it's hard, uh, and I would, I would say, again, it's bad that I'm on camera, uh, there's, <laughs> we actually become less good at it in some ways and are currently investing in getting better at it. So a bunch of ways which we're, we're awesome at it as an organization that does distance and remote work. Um, like I think somebody who case studies that should come and look at us. We've gotten a lot better at it in the last year and a half. We use video a lot. Um, you know, this space kind of reflects the ways we, we want to work. So I think the day-to-day -day part of it, for an organization that has 150 people here, 150 people at other offices that are working from their home, in their bedroom, uh, a lot of volunteers, um, you know, I, I think we're pretty good. We can always get better. We still need to get better. Um, I think the engagement part is hard, which is there is a real tension between um, building the professional horsepower that we need and bringing people in. Mary is back there, and she's one of the people who has to do it, right? Like, mm -hmm. keep the community, she drives a lot of community marketing stuff. And it, it's hard to, to keep people engaged. And I think we are now having to go back and sort of say, what's 2 or 3.0 version of engagement for us? Um, because the things that work to get that out in the New York Times, which we I think in some ways we've kind of Maybe getting lazy is a bit too harsh on us, but you know, we say, well, that's how we work. Of course, like, look, we're awesome at that, and yeah, we were, and we still do some of that stuff, but we're actually not awesome at that at the scale and the sophistication that we need to do now. So I, I think that's something that we struggle with. And so we actually need to take that sort of thing that I just said about in terms of leadership, which is empowering people, letting, letting them run, and we need to systematize them, and we need to figure out how they work at the level of you know, thousands or, or maybe tens of thousands of local meetups a year or people organizing new tasks and all those things. And we don't know how to do that yet. I think it's something that we're actively struggling with. It's interesting to tie that into the business model questions we were talking about earlier because part of the operating model here is to have a huge part of the workforce is unpaid. So you got half paid, half yeah, unpaid in terms of this, which is a... Yeah, and, and it, you know, so I guess it's, but it requires a different kind of management. Yeah, yeah. So right? there's no question it's a different kind of leadership, different kind of management. Yeah. Uh, and I think also part of that shift is thinking different ways about what that unpaid work is or, or not even really thinking yeah. that way. So one of the other things in terms of scaling, so part of that contribution is, is also about feeling connected, right? Yes. Back to what, I don't think that comes out enough to what we think about in the social entrepreneurship literature. Uh, and Vermal was right on about it. Because part of that, yes, it's a, it's a volunteer labor force. 
part of it's also about a group of people who feel connected to this thing, who those are the people who evangelize it, those are the people who get out there. Yeah. And one of the things we're having to do is reconceptualize connection, because 20,000 volunteers may sound awesome, like they all fire all bugs, or even 3 million beta testers may sound awesome, but really, we need to be operating at the level of tens of millions of people who feel they have some stake in it um, and yep. have something to do. So we don't yet know, like, how do we engage those people? Because it's not going to be actually building Firefox, right? right? What's the, what is the engagement for them? If we want to say then 50 years from now, what's this organization or this movement that keeps the web open? Um, so that stuff's changing a lot. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, yes, back here. Uh, well, that, uh, two questions. One, you're also a nonprofit that has not a, that doesn't have a capital issue. You got hundred million dollars right. in the bank, so there's a very good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so my question about that is when is being a nonprofit been a barrier for you? Because it certainly hasn't been a capital barrier. But on the second question, which I'm actually more interested in, is the engagement 2.0, 3.0 is probably going to be defined by those four hundred million users. So how are you just listening to them and what are the most exciting examples you're seeing out there? Yes, it's pretty early days, and I don't think we've seen any that will blow your mind. Um, we've seen some, and so you know, I would just say it's been nine months since we've been doing this drumbeat thing, which is one of our kind of two ways that we'll invite people in to define that. Uh, and actually, so maybe maybe if I don't think about the whole 400 million, I just think the people who come in the door so far, there are some good examples. Um, they're not fully from the edge, but they're not from our core uh, either. And so, you know, for example, one of the cool things we're doing. Uh, as we focus on education is one place where we can shape things and what the web is, is we've seen these people who are doing something called peer-to-peer -peer university uh, come in and say, well, you know, we actually need a really good place to show off peer-to-peer -peer university, which is basically study groups of people with open content, right? They're teaching each other, but they actually want to prove that they can assess and certify in that context and, you know, disrupt universities. Mm -hmm. You know, you also yep. have a job. They, they, don't, they think research universities should stay. Um, oh, good. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad uh, to hear that. But uh, in any case, uh, you know, they're looking for a real place where they can show this thing can work uh, at scale. People can get jobs, right? And so, guess what? Guess what industry is like totally been failed by the education system? Web development. And so they've kind of come to us and said, well, let's build out this school of web crap where what we're going to do is we're going to try out assessment and certification in web development using peer teaching. So. Those are the kind of things that are starting to come in to the edge, and some of the stuff with the filmmakers that we're working with is kind of like that. But it's still baby stuff compared to uh, where we want to go, and it's still not, the stuff we're getting is still stuff that we can imagine getting 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 people involved in building and maybe having kind of reach and build in smaller contributions from you know, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people. The ideas that come in that are going to allow a lot of people to, to participate, or the, the volume ideas that allow a lot of people to participate in those, that stuff I think is really, I can't see it yet. But, we're, but it's something we're actively thinking about how we do. So one of the things we'll do next year probably is open up something that looks a lot more like a standard membership program that then gives us more surface area and more people to have that conversation with. Because that's the other thing. We don't know how to talk to those 400 million people. Like we're, we're actually not well set up for that at all. So the next step beyond this kind of drumbeat piece is to build a service area where we can have those conversations and that they can have conversations with each other. Paul? Just a quick question. What do you do with all that money when the IRS comes 
So, so and, we're and, and you're labeled a foundation. Right. So How we, does that all work? So we need to. So we. Uh, yeah, we, we need to get into the boring how we're structured uh, conversation, which is yeah. kind of boring to this group. Because um, we've and I, I say it's boring because we've spent a lot of time saying, oh, we're a 501c3 with two for-profit subsidiaries. It mm -hmm. turns out, uh, and it goes to the, the question of Paul and the fair trade stuff. Nobody gives a shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Except for you guys on the IRS. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what we're actually trying to do is move our brand back from, we're Mozilla. Yes, we happen to have a bunch of operating organizations, but we're a nonprofit, and uh, that, you know, that's all that most people really care to know. And so we were actually doing a bunch of branding work to go back and really say, we're a nonprofit that stands up for the internet, and not we're these different configurations of, of legal organizations. But turns out, we're a 501c3 with two primary for-profit subsidiaries, one that makes Thunderbird, one that makes Mail. Um, it's an interesting story that, that we'll maybe never know the answer to. Why we did that was because we didn't know what the IRS would think about that revenue. Our, our very clear and studied opinion is that search needed to be in the Firefox browser for us to meet our mission. Like if you think back, there were, there were no search bars in browsers in 2003, right? So we were saying, we need mm -hmm. a browser that protect the internet, and one of the things that's going to get people to use it is search. And what's the first thing people want to do in the browser in 2003? Search. All right. Mm -hmm. So that for us was like a mission-based decision. And you can go back and you can read bugs where people argued over what search engine to make as the default. And, and by the way, yeah. the search engine even predated any deal with Google by years, right? Uh, and so you saw people arguing what search engine, but then and the, you know the engineers are in there, and people say, well, everybody uses Google. Let's put in Google. Right? So there was no commercial intent. And then we, we just said, oh, we're leaving all this money on the table. Maybe they would be willing to share some of it. And there was a, a, then a, a contract made up. It's certainly beneficial to them. They probably be better off of, by far than us uh, in terms of the huge amount of traffic they get. Um, so our thought with the IRS was that is actually legitimate related business income. Um, we'll never know necessarily what they'll think about that. Um, but why we've got the structure we've got is we didn't want to find out. Um, <laughs> so do you have to spend 5%? Uh, no, because we're a public benefit. Uh, what yeah, we not a private do foundation. raise 33% or 10% as public support. Yeah. And so that actually, somebody asked it before and I didn't answer, what's been the problem of being a nonprofit? One of them is um, moving money around between our different structures in a period where we haven't been aggressively going out after public support money. So one of the things that we may be able to do in the future is at least do one of the things that I'm trying to get us to do, which is help other people uh, who care about the web pool their resources and shape a little bit how philanthropic money uh, gets used in the space, including by investing in some funds that we'll set up. That also helps us move money more fluidly across organizations because it brings additional public support in. All right, excellent. I think we're probably about at the end of time. I see Aaron nodding at me back there. We've got this spread over there that looks like it's getting ready for the reception. Um, Paul, well, I'll do, if I could close the session and then we'll let you close the whole thing, Paul. So we'll just take a minute to thank Mark uh, for this. But I think Mozilla provides a very important and powerful example of how to change an ecosystem, in this case, largely through product disruption, but also by um, mobilizing a lot of interest in keeping the internet open and the web open um, in interesting ways. And I think it's a, a fascinating s story. So Mark, thanks for sharing that with us. 
uh, powerful, and thanks for hosting us here, uh, too. This was just wonderful. Thanks. I just want to say thanks to all of you guys, and, and thanks for you guys thinking of it. We wouldn't have thought to do it, and you know, come back and do it again, because really, as I said in the beginning, quite genuinely, I don't get to talk to people like you very often, but you know, we're, we're in the same business, right? So it's actually very helpful to me in my job and you know, for the other Mozilla people who are here in the room just to engage in this conversation this way. So please do come back. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much. Let me echo the, the thanks to, to Mozilla folks, Mary and, and Mark. For the hospitality party, Sarah. Sarah too. Okay. Yes. And then I, um, uh, I especially want to thank Aaron Worsham. Uh, and Susie Camp, who I guess had to leave, right? Uh, both of them uh, did moments work uh, in creating this event. Um, this was uh, uh, an attempt to interact more with. The real world and practitioners get out of our ivory tower, and I think, uh, in my mind, we've accomplished a lot of that. And uh, I don't see this as the end of this kind of relationship and this kind of discussion. I hope that we will stay in touch with a lot of you uh, and uh, continue this dialogue and discussion. Maybe you can come back here someday uh, and stage some other type of event. Uh, uh, we are also considering having events like this in other parts of the country. Uh, so uh, uh, this is. Uh, very positive experience from my point of view and I think from our whole group's point of view. Uh, and we hope uh, that you enjoy the hospitality for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, and definitely, as I said, stay in touch. Thank you. Produced by Duke University. Online at duke.edu.